Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I briefly as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Chapter 3 begins a new division in the book of Ephesians. Paul starts the chapter with the phrase, for this cause. That means for the purposes that link back to chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. More, more specifically, focusing on verses 19 through 22, when he says, Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers, foreigners, fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. He's been encouraging the Gentile believers in Ephesus concerning God's plan and purposes and promises. Paul is going to reveal God's eternal purpose for believers in every generation. God's purpose in Christ is to make a new body of believers. Clearly, that Gentiles were to be saved, that wasn't a mystery. The Old Testament revealed repeatedly that God was going to have a plan for the Gentiles. What wasn't revealed is exactly what this new body would be. It would be both Jew and Gentile making one new man, united. This new body is tasked with loving the Lord God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, that they'll love the Lord supremely. That's the point of the opening chapter in verses 1 through 13. The second purpose is going to be given later in the chapter. It's to bring the believer to maturation, to the fullness of God in Christ, which is in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. 
So Paul refers to his ministry to the Gentiles as the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you in verse 2. Paul was entrusted with the message of grace. Paul was expected to convey that message to the people at Ephesus who were by and large Gentiles who were drawn from every ethnic group imaginable in the Mediterranean. So how did Paul come to know God's plan? He gives us it. By revelation, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. He began it in chapter 1, verse 9. He continued in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So Paul refers to himself as the recipient of the mystery, in verses 1 through 4, in verse 7, in verse 9. The time of the mystery, in verse 5. The nature of the mystery, in verse 6. The reason for the mystery, in verses 10 through 12. The mystery was concealed, he said, in the Old Testament, in verse 5, and revealed in the New Testament, at the end of verse 5. The secret is that believing Jews, believing Gentiles, are going to be joined in a new body, a unique creation, with Jesus as the charter, the body of Christ in verse 6. So Paul's mission is to preach God's word to the Gentiles in verse 1, in verse 4, in verse 9. He begins by making reference to his mistreatment in verses 1 and 2. Although he's guilty of no crime, Paul is in prison. And then we see Paul's meekness. He sees himself as the least deserving of Christian to be the recipient of this mystery, but understands the reasons for the mystery, that God's wisdom and grace is going to be experienced collectively by the church in verses 10 through 12, and then shown to angelic spirit beings in verse 10. So the word mystery is important in our study. Paul uses the term three times in this chapter. Well, actually... And six times in the letter. So what does this word mean? Mystery. This last few weeks I was digging through my comics. And I found a series of comics called Journey into Mystery. When you're a kid growing up, you want to know all about these mysterious things. But that's not what Paul means by it. John Stott offers us this insight. He writes, quote, We need to realize that the English and Greek words do not have the same meaning. In English, a mystery is something dark, obscure, puzzling, secret. What is mysterious is inexplicable, even incomprehensible. The Greek word mysterion is different, however. Although still a secret... It's no longer closely guarded, but open. The Christian mysteries are truths which, although beyond human discovery, have been revealed by God and so now belong openly to the whole church. If I were to abbreviate Stott's definition, 
It's something that was concealed in the past, but revealed in the present by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Something concealed in the past, revealed in the, in the present. So a mystery is a sacred secret that was unknown to unbelievers, but understood and treasured by the people of God. So Jesus comes to a world deeply divided, estranged from God, estranged from one another. I was on the radio yesterday on a friend's program, and we talked about this deeply divided America, and that is something that you will hear often. You'll hear people say, we're two Americas. We're divided between the haves and the have-nots. We're divided by race. We're divided by religion. We're divided by political party. We're divided by personal perceptions. And sometimes those perceptions cut so deep into the fabric of life, of church life, of social life. I've heard that this year people, instead of having Thanksgiving with their families, are only going to invite their friends who agree with them. Can you imagine? The most serious problem is the deep division between the creator and his creation that's been brought about by man's sin and rebellion. The Bible reveals to us what the real problem is. People are estranged from God. Paul understands that human beings estranged from God will never fulfill their purpose unless they're reconciled by Christ. In the early church, mystery religions were everywhere. I've done an extensive uh, um, study on the mystery religions of the ancient world, particularly in the first century, there was a, a pagan religion called Mithraism, and it, it literally vied for Christianity in the first and the second century. There were the mystery religions of Gnosticism. Most people had exposure in Ephesus to the cult of Mithras, to the cult of Diana, to the cults that were prevalent. And I'm quite certain that many of Paul's readers would have been exposed to one or more of these mystery religions. These religions involved self-deprivation and exposure to one or more kinds of altered states of consciousness, whether it was through drug use or altered states, these religions played heavily on subjective experiences, profound emotions. They appealed to sacred information that could only be obtained if you joined their particular group. Remember, they're living in a world where they're thinking, it's what you feel and it's what you experience that becomes the most important thing. So Paul is declaring that the mystery God chose to conceal in the past and reveal to the present isn't something that you keep to yourself, but it's something that's full of joy and is for everyone. No one has to be left out. Everyone in Christ can be included. The church of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus is for everyone. It isn't so that you go to a particular place and pay a particular amount of money and then you get to join some exclusive club. In the 80s, we used to wear a jacket and we thought it was cool that said members only. 
And of course, it went completely out of style in the 90s. And I remember about the year 2000, I saw an old guy wearing the jacket. It said members only. And I go, what are you, the last member? <laughs> things come and things go. But the significance of the amazing ministry and mystery weren't lost on Paul. So Paul is going to explore the significance of this amazing mystery for himself, for the Gentiles, for angels, and for the church. So we begin with the significance to Paul. Look at verse 1. It says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, indeed if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Paul believes he exists to serve Christ. At the beginning, he basically is going to make it absolutely clear to the people in Ephesus, no matter what the hardship, no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence, no, no matter what the suffering, Paul has been entrusted with the stewardship of grace. That word translated dispensation is literally the Greek word stewardship. And so the way we think about it, it's the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Paul basically says, God's revealed this to me for you. He believes he exists for no other reason than to fulfill God's plan and purposes. Paul is both a literal and a figurative prisoner. When he's writing these words, He's writing the words from Rome. He's writing to the people in Ephesus, but he himself is a prisoner, and he has been in, in, in custody, if you will, for at least five years. And by the way, if you hear from a family member or a friend and they go, I'm, if they begin their note with, I'm writing to you from jail. No, you laugh, but what does that mean? What does it mean if they say, I'm writing to you from jail? I'm writing to you from prison. Just like in the, ancient, just like in the modern world, are there dangers associated with being incarcerated? Well, guess what? They were multiplied in the ancient world. Paul is a real prisoner on trumped-up charges, no pun intended. In the book of Acts, chapter 21, verses 27 and 28, well, actually, in chapters uh, 21, beginning in verse 27, all the way to chapter 28, ending in verse 16, it tells the story of how Paul wound up getting arrested, how he makes his way to Caesarea, how he gets shipwrecked, how he makes his way to Rome, and he is at that very moment on an appeal as he's getting ready to face the emperor Nero. Paul was accused of bringing his friend and companion Trophimus into the place where Gentiles weren't allowed. Now, again, Trophimus, the guy who he's accused of, of bringing into the place where Gentiles aren't allowed, guess what city he was from? Ephesus. He was from Ephesus. His companion was from Ephesus. He is falsely accused of bringing him into the forbidden area of the temple, which he never did. Paul faced hearings before the Sanhedrin and then before the Roman governor. 
And again, now his case is on appeal to Caesar in Rome. So when he writes these words, the whole ordeal has been going on for five long years. He is in jail, but he refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ in obedience to his calling for the Gentiles. You know, perspective makes all the difference in the world. Paul doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Nero. I'm a prisoner of Rome. He basically says, I am here for you Gentiles. There's a famous story of Christopher Wren as he's building St. Paul's Cathedral. He's surveying the work and he asked a man, hey, what are you doing? He says, I'm cutting this stone to fit this shape. He asked another man, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing a job which makes me a great deal of money. He asked a third person who got up, he squared his shoulder, he held his head high and he says, I am helping Christopher Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral. He's able to see beyond just the task at hand. This is what Paul is doing. God has changed Saul into Paul the Apostle. On the Damascus Road, we've talked about his testimony so many times. Saul was the picture of Jewish orthodoxy. And I suspect that his attitude and love for Gentiles prior to his conversion was no different from his contemporary peers. If Paul were here and you were to ask him, tell me how you felt about Gentiles before you got saved. He would have said, I remember the prayer I used to pray. Thank you, God, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. He probably shared the same convictions and prejudices that perhaps some of you had. Maybe you grew up in a world of isolation or, or prejudice or distinction. But everything changed when God changed Saul into Paul. Paul is writing concerning the significance of the mystery in his own life. Each and every one of you should be able to look back on a time when you should be able to say, I used to be this, but now I'm someone different in Christ. Paul basically says that God made Paul a slave to Jesus. For what purpose? To preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He exists as a steward. We could translate that slave of the dispensation of the grace of God. And again, the word translated dispensation is oikonomion. It's usually from the root word, it means a householder. So the word was used to describe a stewardship or a management or administration or ownership. It was a specific word that was used to describe a person who was tasked with the oversight of something usually important. Here the meaning would seem to be that God has given Paul stewardship or duty to oversee and administer the grace of God to the world. You should let that sink in for just a moment. Because when Paul receives not only his vision 
from Christ and Jesus says to him, you're going to go into all the world and you're going to preach the gospel. Guess what? He believed it. He actually believed that that's what he was supposed to do. And so Paul's job isn't simply to preach the gospel or win converts or build churches or build an organization or a hierarchy, but it's to instruct the people in the unsearchable riches and treasures that are found in Christ. And so we soon discover something, that this is our privilege and our responsibility as well in Christ. We are stewards and servants of grace that we were never, ever meant to keep to ourselves. It was something that has been designed by God for you to give away. And remember, you've grown up in a world, perhaps, where people have said, well, I like to keep my faith private. I don't like to talk about these things. In Mark chapter 10, verses 43 and 44, Jesus, speaking of what it means to be a servant or how people operate in the world, how people lord it over each other and control each other and manipulate each other, Jesus says, this is not the way it should be with you. In Mark 10, 43, he says, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first shall be the slave of all. In Matthew 20, 28, he says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Every minister is a steward of God's grace. And remember, minister here doesn't mean like you're ordained clergy. That's not what it's actually talking about. It means a person who's tasked with the job of service in Christ. Do you know what that means? Each and every one of you, without exception, are ministers. And you've been entrusted with the ministry of God's grace. Man of God, woman of God, you are the caretaker. You've been entrusted with this stewardship of grace. Now, what does this mean? That means you're to bring grace into a grace-deprived world. The world is suffering from what I call grace deprivation disorder. There is an absence of grace, often in families, clearly in the world, sometimes even in churches. We are stewards of God's grace. And God's mercy. And we are to be generous in dishing it out. In 1 Corinthians 4 verses 1 and 2, Paul will tell the Corinthians, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one is found faithful. There's many things that we could, be, could say about our stewardship, but the most important thing that we could say about our stewardship is you're to be found faithful. You're to be found doing what, what it is that the Lord has asked you to do. Now, in the Old Testament, Joseph's faithful stewardship resulted in him being falsely charged. 
falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, and then much personal deprivation. In the end, it brought great glory to God and salvation for the Egyptian people and eventual salvation, if you will, for Joseph's family. There was a great famine that almost destroyed the Egyptian people. And because of God's plan and purpose in the life of Joseph, he was going to rescue perhaps hundreds of thousands of people. And so a faithful steward will use their gift within the family of God. But guess what? They'll also use their gift outside of the family of God. And even in the unbelieving world, it's okay for you to bring grace into whatever situation you find yourself in. You might be working in a place where there's a conspicuous absence of grace. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That manifold grace of God could also be translated many-splendored, many-faceted. The stewardship that's been entrusted to Paul was a mystery, concealed, but now it's revealed. It required special revelation. So Paul refers the reader back again, like I said, to chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, when he talked about the position of the Gentiles by nature. Jew and Gentile becoming one body in Christ. The church is a temple for the Habitation of God through the Spirit in verse 19. So all of chapter 2 has been leading to chapter 3. Paul is obligated to share the information with others. So when Paul says, when he makes reference to the grace in, that is found in verse 2 and verse 7, the revelation that Paul receives requires complete disclosure. Paul is basically saying, God revealed this to me, and I'm revealing it to you for your benefit. Paul doesn't simply speak of the mystery. He wants to clarify the mystery and then explain the mystery. Note in verse 4 the expression, When you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. The word translated knowledge means something unique. Knowledge has three different ways of being spoken of in the Greek language, but in this particular instance, it means to bring two things that were separate together. Here, knowledge means, let me try and think of something, the opposite of foolishness. It's whatever the opposite of foolishness is, which is knowledge informed by wisdom. And so it's also the opposite of a lack of spiritual discernment. And so it comes with it the idea of being discerning in any given situation. John MacArthur writes, spiritual insight must always precede practical application because what is not properly understood cannot be properly applied. And so Paul wants you to understand the ramifications of what it means 
of what you've received. In verse 5 it says, Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And so he makes it abundantly clear that the church was a concept that was hinted at in the Old Testament, but not revealed in, until the New Testament. The whole Old Testament gives, I'm going to say, bold declarations that God wanted to save the Gentiles. It was obvious to anyone reading the Old Testament that God's plans and purposes wasn't to just save the Jewish people, but that God was going to have a plan and a purpose for the Gentiles. They were portrayed as a people far off, looking for a salvation that only God could provide in his servant. Zechariah calls this servant who is going to come the branch. The shock and the surprise isn't that the Gentiles are going to be saved, but rather that they're going to have full access, equal privilege, shared promises, that they're going to, that they're going to receive a treatment that was absolutely, fundamentally, positively the same as the Jews who are saved. And you've got to understand, again, what an amazing concept that is. In verse 5, Paul plainly states that God is going to build a new covenant people. And no one, no one really understood the full meaning of the Abrahamic promise when, when, when in the Old Testament it said, to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And people would think, yeah, of course the, all the families of the earth were, will be blessed because God through the Jewish people is going to bring a revelation. It's going to be the revelation of the law. Jewish people are going to make um, an awesome and important contribution to the human race. It was that, but it was way more than that. It was way more than that. God's was going to give Abraham's offspring was going to be the mechanism whereby lost people could be saved. And so the expression in which in other ages was not made known, it's, a, it's an expression which means in the past generations it was not known. And so now he talks about the significance to the Gentiles in verses 6 through 8, where he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise through Christ, through the gospel. What Paul is doing in this one sentence is he's restating the mystery. As he's restating the mystery, we discover that the revelation consisted of three parts. Number one, the Gentiles are fellow heirs of God with the Jews. Number two, the Gentiles are of the same. Listen carefully. Not separate. They're the same, not separate. They're the same, not separate body with the Jews. Saved Jews, saved Gentiles become the one body of Christ equal in what they're going to receive. So Paul makes up a new word in order to describe this new thing that's translated fellow heirs and partakers. And it's almost impossible to communicate what this means. But I'm going to give it a little bit of a shot. 
even though the Gentiles were to be saved, to become one with the Jew, to join the covenant community. Again, it's revolutionary. It's unprecedented. I'm trying to think of an illustration. Imagine you come upon a colony of lepers. You suddenly declare them to be clean, and now they're allowed to associate with everyone who's healthy. It's shocking and disturbing. Again, John MacArthur says, the thought of Gentiles being on an equal spiritual footing with the Jew was inconceivable and nothing short of blasphemy, unquote. I think again of the movie, The Princess Bride, where he goes, this is inconceivable. <laughs> and remember the guy goes, I don't think that you that that word means what you think that it means. It's inconceivable. So why is this significant to the Gentiles? They become heirs with the Jews. Listen carefully. They are equally blessed as outsiders who now become Fully insiders. I can't even begin to tell you how important this is, particularly for the person who thinks, again, falsely, that the Jewish people, they, they think correctly that the Jews are chosen, God's chosen people. And sometimes they feel left out and they go, I want to be God's chosen people. Why can't I be a Jew? Why was I born a Gentile? And the point that you have to understand is God chose the Jewish people to bring forth the law and the oracles and the Messiah. Think carefully. The Jews are chosen to be unique and special, but also they're chosen to bring forth the Messiah. And so Paul is declaring to the Gentile that the Gentile has equal privileges with the Jew in Christ and in the gospel. And this is key and critical. It isn't apart from the gospel and apart from Christ. There's no equality apart from Christ and apart from the gospel in the, in the spiritual sense of the word. So the Gentiles join the covenant body. The Gentiles are fully invested. So what is Paul saying? All Christians, regardless of ethnicity, language, status prior to coming to Christ, in Christ, their fellow heirs together in everything that pertains to Christ. And we've already learned this. Believers share a common inheritance. Everything that Jesus has, we have. By faith in Jesus, we're no longer outsiders, strangers, or second-class citizens. The revelation of this mystery was foretold by Jesus, but not explained by Jesus. When? In Matthew 16, 18. Do you remember when he's speaking to Peter? After Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, and I say to you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. When Peter makes the statement, you are the Christ, and Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on Peter, on something so 
flimsy and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Uncertain. But guess what becomes certain? The declaration. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And you'll remember what Jesus said. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But my father in heaven has revealed it to you. In other words, the revelation of the identity, of the messianic identity of Jesus, that he is the singular solution to the problem of sin, that he will bring redemption and reconciliation. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Jesus lives in the believing Jew, and Jesus lives inside the believing Gentile. The full revelation was given to Paul and then accepted by Peter and James and John and all of the apostles. In Paul's writings, we find the doctrine, the position, the walk, and the destiny of the church. And so in verse 7, it says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Paul is in a Roman prison. But he has walked from Jerusalem all the way to Macedonia, back to Jerusalem. He has tramped some 1,800 miles without benefit of bus or cars or transportation. He is in a Roman world. And as he's in this Roman world, he sees this deeply divided Roman world united in Christ. Everything that was divided is now going to be made whole in Christ. And so when he says, of the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power to me, whom the least less than the least of all the saints. Not just apostles. He goes, on the scale of one to ten, this person being the best and this person being the worst, he puts himself one step below who's ever last. This is in part a picture of his humility. In Greek, it says, quote, Paul became literally, was made or created. When he says, of which I became, the Greek reads, literally was made or created a servant of the gospel. This is such a strong statement. It would be like asking you the question, what were you created for? I was, I was created to be a minister of the gospel. Since time immemorial, God chose this for me. Believing Gentiles are not only given a new relationship, but they're also given the same power that Paul is given, the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. The power that he's talking about, remember, is the power that changed him on the road to Damascus. It was the power that took him from being a persecuting person who was trying desperately to rid the world of Christians and Christianity to saving him, changing him in the most glorious way possible by the effective working of his power, the power illustrated 
in the life of Paul, this is what he means when he says, given to me. God saved Paul by grace, just like he saved you. God gave Paul a stewardship, just like he gave you a stewardship. He's entrusted to you a special ministry. Paul's special ministry is to present the gospel to the Gentiles. I don't know what your special ministry is. But I do know something. I know that each and every one of you has a special ministry. And so part of the journey that we take together is for God to reveal the special ministry that he's given to you. And then we confirm that special ministry. And then you exercise that special ministry that God has given to you. Each of you is entrusted with a special stewardship. And this is the other important thing that can only be accomplished by you. I can't do what God has called you to do. You're the one person in the whole wide world who can do only what God has called you to do. This is the effective working of his power. That word, you already know that word. It's dunamis. It, 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 is, it's, it means the effectual power. It's the energetic working that gives you the ability to do what you're doing. So the Gentiles, listen, are given grace. And they're given power. And they're given riches. Look at the expression. The unsearchable riches of Christ. These are the riches that can't be tracked. The word means that which cannot be traced. Many years ago, I used to keep a silhouette of my young son, Anthony, when he was a little boy. A silhouette is a tracing that captures the outline of a figure. If you've ever seen a silhouette, it just gives you the outline and then the inside is darkened. It's a trace, but it doesn't give you the full features of my son who has his mother's incredible good looks and my keen sense of fashion. <laughs> but you know what he's talking about? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the silhouette. Christ's outline cannot be traced. Imagine you see this outline of Jesus, but the silhouette is inexhaustible. It is inscrutable. It is past knowing. It is infinite. The riches are so vast that you can never, ever find the end. So who are these riches for? Paul is making the riches available to you and to me. Look at verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. So he's saying, I want you to think about everything that God has done in my life. And since I'm less than the least, then he invites you to consider the grace that's been given to you. That if he's less than the least and God is willing to do all of that for him, 
What will he withhold from you? Later, Paul will refer to himself as the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And I like what Warren Wiersbe says about this passage. He says, quote, Understanding the deep truths of God's word does not give a man a big head. It gives him a broken and a contrite heart. And so Paul doesn't go, hey, you know, I just want to bring something to your attention. Um, I'm going to write one-third of the New Testament. Um, I am going to receive a vision of heaven. I'm never going to star in a made-for-TV movie. Um, but think about all of the things that God has done in my life. He doesn't do that. What he does is exactly the opposite. When he considers who he was, and then what God did in his life, it gives him a broken and a contrite heart. Think about this for just a minute. This is what Bible study will do if you do it right. This is why it's so disturbing sometimes when you're prompted by the Holy Spirit and the Lord speaks to you and says, Open up your Bible. Open up your Bible. I want you to read your Bible. And you say to the Lord, I don't want to read my Bible because all it does is convict me of my sin and it calls me to repent and return to you. It reveals to me all of the stuff I'm not supposed to be doing. I know. Isn't it great? It washes and cleanses and purifies and it calls you back to himself. What has the Bible study done for you? What has been revealed to Paul has to be proclaimed by Paul. In other words, the revelation that's been given to him, he has to impart it to others. All revealed truth is held in trust and is a stewardship given to the people of God. That's why your Bible is a stewardship that's been entrusted to you as well. You don't monopolize the truth. If men can't keep scientific discoveries to themselves, how much more should we keep the truths of the Bible to ourselves? Can you imagine if somebody found a cure for AIDS or a cure for cancer and the, the scientist said, you know what, I'm going to keep this all to myself? What would you say? How selfish could you possibly be? Think of the hundreds of thousands of people, the millions of people who could benefit from this discovery. So how could we cruelly keep what Christ has done simply to ourselves? There's one additional comment that I want to make about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is convinced and so we must be convinced that the knowledge of Jesus, the truth about Jesus, it never impoverishes, but it always makes you richer. I'm going to repeat that. Knowing more about Jesus doesn't take things away from you. It gives things to you. It doesn't make you impoverished. It makes you rich. Here's the double obligation that Paul insists on. 
to share God's truth and then to share God's riches. Why? Because in Christ we have everything that we need and more. So we have to literally recover the apostolic conviction. Once we're sure that the gospel is the truth from God and riches for mankind, then nothing should silence you. If you are convinced what Paul is saying, is the gospel the truth from God? It is or it isn't. Is it riches for mankind? It is exactly that. then you can never remain silent ever again. How can you pretend that someone or something else can satisfy you when you already know the truth? So he talks about the significance to himself and the significance to the Gentiles. Then he talks about the significance to the angels. Look what it says in verses 9 and 10. And to make all see... What is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This thing is so rich that I I wish I could just spend the next three weeks just on these two verses, but let me just try and make it as simple as I can. Paul, as the people are reading the letter in Ephesus, Paul anticipates a question in their mind. Why did God keep this a secret for so long? So Paul says, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Everyone needs to understand that Jew and Gentile have been reconciled to God in Christ, which from the beginning of the ages was hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus. This is not just a subtle, this is an in-your-face declaration that Jesus created everything. When you read in the opening chapters of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Who created the heavens and the earth? Jesus created the heavens and the earth. If you don't believe me, remember in Colossians, he basically reiterates that Jesus creates the heavens and the earth. And in verse 24 through 28, he says in chapter 1, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his church, which is of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says it to the Ephesians. He says it to the Colossians. He says it to the Romans. Jesus is God. Jesus created the heavens and the earth. God kept this a secret in eternity past that we would share an equal salvation and have equal consequences. He says to make all see. Then he goes to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities in heaven. The Old Testament again states the Gentiles are going to be brought to God by Israel. 
It would seem that God conceals the truth about the church for reasons known only to him. Paul doesn't say, oh, this is why he kept it a secret. Here's what he basically says. He says, he kept it a secret. Well, why did he keep it a secret? I don't know. It was concealed, but now it's revealed. We do know that God didn't even include the angels in on the secret. How do we know? Because Paul says God is educating the angels by means of the church. In what way? One Bible teacher has made the comment that the church is the university of the cosmos and every believer is a professor or an instructor or a teacher. There are demonic spirit beings and there are angelic spirit beings. There is an invisible group of beings that exist in this invisible world that you can't see and angels and demons look at you and they wonder. Why in the world would God save you? Why in the world would he cleanse you? By the way, are demons going to be saved? No. The Bible says that they know that Jesus Christ is the Lord, but they tremble. Jesus didn't become a fallen angel in order to reconcile fallen angels. Jesus becomes a human being in order to reconcile you. And now the angels go, but wait a minute. Why wouldn't you redeem deserving people or people who are are at least trying to meet you halfway? It's so, again, that you become the objects of grace and mercy throughout eternity. In other words, if anyone ever wants to understand what God is really like, is God good? Is God kind? Is God gracious? Is God loving? Is God generous? God just points his finger at you and invites the angels to look at you. How can you presume that God is anything other than all of those things? Our pupils are angels and demons. By principalities and powers, Paul means spirit beings, angels, demons. We know that they're created beings. We also know that they don't know everything and they certainly don't understand everything. They're limited. Peter suggested in Old Testament times, the angels were curious about the plan of salvation. In the ancient world, the angels were going, how's God going to bring this all together? There's a rebellion by Satan and his angels. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's Jacob's son, Judah. There's David. There's all of these things. You march through this Old Testament. You're reading the Old Testament. And you're going, how is God going to make all of this work? How is he going to bring it all together? How is he going to make sure that you get saved and you get reconciled? And then it happens. And you are. Note, Paul says God created all things through Jesus. That God's intention was to make known the wisdom of God to who? To the church. The wisdom of God is made manifest or known by the church to spirit beings in what way? Salvation is going to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
So the revelation in part isn't just simply that Gentiles are going to be saved. It should surprise you that spirit beings are amazed by what God has done in saving you. Imagine the angels in heaven are going, I'm so blown away that he got saved. Can you believe that? Can you imagine all your guardian angels walking with you throughout your life going, not going to happen. This person's not going to get, look, look at that mouth. Look what they're doing. Look what they're saying. Look at them. And then all of a sudden God saves you and they go, I am blown away. Paul tells the Romans that the depth and the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge and judgments are unsearchable, it says in Romans 11.33. One translation of the passage says, quote, so that through the church, God's many-sided wisdom would be shown to the rulers and the authorities in heaven, unquote. Angels aren't simply amazed that you got saved. Angels are amazed that you have immediate access to God. Angels don't get to go into heaven's throne room except to circle around and say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Angels don't get to go into the throne room and sit on the Father's lap. Angels don't get to whisper in his ear. You do. Angels are amazed that you have access and intimacy that seems unbelievably privileged, considering that you're a human being swollen with sin then saved by grace. And so he talks about the significance for all Christians in verses 11 through 13. It says, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Paul is basically saying, look at all of that. We have boldness to do what? To talk to God, have access to God, to speak with him. Access with confidence. How? Through faith in him. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. The origin of the church lies in the heart of God. God the Father creates the church in his own heart. The Father plans our salvation. The Son implements our salvation. The Holy Spirit empowers our salvation. But what about the pain? Well, yeah, there's going to be pain. What about the sorrow? Yeah, there's going to be sorrow. Well, what about the trials, the setbacks, the tribulations, the difficulties? All of that's going to be there. But our prayers are going to be answered. Chuck Swindoll writes, To the Ephesians, Paul's being under arrest may have made the outlook seem bleak, but the outlook was clear. God had not lost sight of Paul, and he doesn't lose sight of us either. Our relationship with him then can help guard us from discouragement. 
the outlook might be bleak sometimes in your life. You lose your job. You get a diagnosis of cancer. Things seem very, very bad. But Paul reminds them that these truths were entrusted to him. Paul entrusts them to faithful men and women who is supposed to guard them and then share them. Later, right before his death, he's going to write to Timothy and say, Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. In 1 Timothy 6.20, at the very end of Paul's life, he writes, quote, I've kept the faith. During the days of Paul, the gospel was guarded. It was preached. It was handed down to faithful men. He says, by grace, Paul made known God's grace to the Gentiles. By grace, Christ made Jew and Gentile one in the church. By grace, we are Christ's church. We proclaim the riches of his grace to each new generation. So Paul reminds the Ephesians, don't lose heart. Don't become discouraged in trial and tribulation for Christ. They are for the Gentiles, for you. Paul is willing to suffer for the people he loves. Paul is willing to suffer for Christ. Paul is willing to suffer for the church. And you know what he understands? That the moment that he's willing to do all of those things, he's just simply doing what Jesus has done for him. And now you begin to understand what it means when it says that God's plan and purpose is to make you like Jesus, to conform you into his image, the inexpressible glory that lies ahead for the believer, no matter how great the suffering, Paul will later write, is going to be worth the reward. We're given permission. Once again, we're given permission to not faint over suffering. We're given permission to not panic when a believer comes to us and says, I'm right in the midst of a trial. I'm right in the midst of suffering. I've been given a painful setback. That doesn't mean we refrain from compassion or prayer. But we are given permission to allow suffering to do what God wants it to do. To mold us and shape us and change us, and make us different. A brief look at history reveals that many of the basic truths found in the book of Ephesians have pretty much been overlooked or ignored. Sometimes the truth found in the scriptures were buried under man-made theology or tradition or religious ritual. The church isn't an afterthought. The church is an amazing thing. Church isn't an accident. It was created in the mind of God and then made real in the sacrifice of Jesus and then in the salvation that was wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is now God's open secret. And the open secret is the church is going to rule in the universe with Jesus and the angels in the kingdom to come, the earth is going to continue to produce tyrants and dictators and difficult people. 
But Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You see, the church is central to the gospel. The book of Ephesians teaches us that the complete gospel, listen carefully, is the preaching of the gospel. Jesus loves you, died for you, and rose from the dead, but also the mystery of the church. Did you know that? The gospel isn't just simply God loves you and Jesus loves you and he died for you. Part of the gospel is, oh, by the way, God is now going to save you and then reconcile you to God and then to each other. It's the church that's watched by demons and angels. And let's face it, when the church preaches Jesus and then lives Jesus and then demonstrates Jesus, even the world takes notice. The church is central to the gospel. The church is also central to, to Christian living. The passage ends with Paul's mention of his suffering. But Paul is willing to pay the price. To see that the church goes forward. To make sure that God's plan goes forward. Listen carefully. Not Paul's plan, but that God's plan will go forward. And so we're invited to, to just consider just for a moment, the most important thing isn't what happens to me. The most important thing is that God's plan goes forward, regardless of what happens to me. The church isn't an option, but a necessity for the believer. And it's a delusion to think that you can be close to God and far from the church. Richard Hooker said, quote, The church is in Christ as Eve was in Adam. I like that. The church is in Christ as Eve was in Adam. Yes, sometimes God's going to have to call Adam to fall asleep to remove us from the place where we belong. Robert Short said, quote, the church is the great lost and found department. <laughs> Have you ever lost something and you went looking for it? Maybe the most important thing that you might have lost is friendship, and fellowship, and relationship with believers that you belong with. The mission of the church, guard the gospel. The mission of the church, proclaim the gospel. The mission of the church, disciple those who believe the gospel. And so, we will walk into the future. The most important thing in the world isn't what happens to me. It's that the plan of God is fulfilled in your life. Please make sure you come back next week. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel that saves us. But thank you for the mystery of the church which reconciles us to each other. 
that, Lord, we are given an opportunity to do what could not be done under any other circumstance, that we could be found new in Christ and then reconciled to one another, that the divisions that existed in the past can be made whole in the present and that we can say with Paul, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male, female, slave or free. Lord, you've taken all of the things that divided us and then reconciled us in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would begin to understand and appreciate your vision for the church and what the church could be like if we're just willing to believe (laughs) what you say about us. And so, Father, again, I pray for these men and women. I pray for the plan that you have for them, the suffering that they might experience knowing, knowing, knowing that whatever inconvenience that we're going to experience, it's nothing compared to the glory that we will one day receive in Jesus' name. And the saints said, Amen. Let's stand. We have come.